In this episode of Investors and Operators, I speak with Michael Painter, co-founder and managing partner of Plexus Capital. Today, we're going to dive deep into how to change firm culture. What is firm culture? How do you have a great firm culture? So, Michael, before we dive into that, let's first get the overview of Plexus Capital. Great. Well, thanks for having me, Jordan. And uh, we're a North Carolina-based investment fund. And we've invested a little over a billion five in 140 small companies around the United States. And we've got 750 million actively invested today in 60 companies uh, all over the country. One of the first questions I had when, when actually we started our project is it was, I was looking at your logo. And, yeah. and so I was a little bit confused on what it actually means, but I think that there's a really interesting story behind that. And I was wondering if you could kind of walk through what is the logo? What does it yeah. represent? Absolutely. So it's a, our logo is a Celtic knot. And uh, the cool part about a Celtic knot is whenever you stress it or pull it uh, from any side, the knot gets stronger. And that really for us just represents really both professionally and personally kind of the journey we all go through where you've got good times, you've got difficult times, challenges, rewarding times. And making sure that you stick together and get stronger through all those things. Um, and so that's really what it represents to us is, is sticking with it, going through the hard stuff and getting better through all the experiences of work and life. So uh, it sounds yeah. like there might be a story or two behind this. Um, are, there, <laughs> are there particular instances in the, in the firm's history when you felt like our values are really being tested? Or yeah. You're like, when that knot is being pulled. Right. Yeah, for sure. So when we started out, we had uh, five partners, and we closed our first fund in 2005. The first two years felt really easy. We were putting money out. Companies were performing well. And then the Great Recession hit, and that was really the first time that our partnership and our relationships had been tested. And one of our partners at the time, Kel Landis, uh, brought in an outside coach. And we went to an offsite for a day and a half. And the, one of the first things she asked us was, okay, well, what do you all do on Monday mornings when you come in? And we said, well, we sit down and we go through every company uh, that has called us in the last week and said, sales are off 20%. And we just get into the portfolio because we got to you know, fix the portfolio and get through this great recession. And she said, all right, let's, let's start here. She said, you all have got to start connecting personally before you get into the hard business stuff, because until you know that you all really genuinely care about each other personally, you're not going to be as productive in how you deal with the hard stuff. And so that was something we started 15 years ago. And we do it every Monday morning now with the entire team where we do personal check-ins for about you know, 30 seconds each so that we all get connected personally before we get into the hard work of doing what we do every day. What are some of your personal check-ins? Like this Monday, yesterday, what was your personal check-in? What was it last week? Let's give the audience some ideas. Yeah. 
So it could be every this Monday, Chris Antonello, uh, uh, actually Lisa Dunning had the check-in this Monday and it was, what was your favorite part about our, uh, offsite that we did with the whole team and spouses in Pinehurst Friday night and Saturday. And so that was an easy one for me. Chris Antonello put together the greatest video you've ever seen, uh, mocking all of the partners and he, pretty much nailed all five of us. So that was, uh, that was pretty entertaining. And then two weeks ago, I had the check-in question and I sent out a, a list of uh, uh, kind of adjectives to the team and had everybody go around and say what they believe to be true about themselves. Hmm. Um, and so that was really powerful just to see everybody, you know, one by one go around and talk about, what they thought their strengths were. And I love that. It, yeah. it makes me think about also one of, one of the things we changed on our Monday meetings is to start the first 10 minutes, like wins from the weekend, whether right. it was a long run or seeing family or something like to consciously start the week in a positive way. And it also helps kind of reframe, especially with like a two-year-old and a five-year-old, like, Hey, how was your weekend? I don't know. I, I don't even remember it. I have, I don't, it was in a blur, but it like right. <laughs> forces us to start something with, in a positive way and to look at, you know, look at the week that happened as well as the week ahead with a good mindset. Yeah. Um, what are, let's kind of, actually, is there another example of when the, when the, when the partnership or the team was challenged and, you know, when you look at that, not you're like, okay, once again, <laughs> yeah. this is a moment when we come together. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, there have been, there have been plenty. Um, I mean, specifically, I remember we were, uh, it was a quarter end, and we had just finished listening to a public uh, peer of ours announce that they had had a big loss in that quarter. This was 2015 or 16. Maybe it was a little later than that. But anyway, the time, time frame doesn't matter. They had just announced a big loss, surprise loss. And we have always talked to the team about the importance of really being direct with bad news early and owning it and then committing to figuring out what happened and getting better so that we don't make the same mistake twice. And it's always easy, easy to talk about that commitment. Um, and right after we two days after we listened to this call of our public peer, we got an out of the blue call from one of our portfolio companies and we had to take a meaningful loss on that. And we really didn't know exactly what had happened because it was very new, fresh news. And we had our advisory board meetings two days later. And so it was a real time example where we had to sit down with the team and say, this is where the rubber meets the road. Like this is where we have to get on these calls and we take ownership of it. We say we have taken a loss on this investment. We don't understand exactly what happened yet, but we are, we will find out what happened. We will report back to you on it and we will make sure that we, you know, don't let something like this, at least hopefully don't make the same mistake again. So, I mean, I think, we get these challenges, you know, in life and business um, and just making sure that we meet them head on and go through them, not around them, take ownership of the challenges. 
And again, that goes back to the Celtic knot of when you go through them and you take ownership of the challenges, I think that's when you can get stronger. How, how do you think about ownership of stuff in the, in the framework of like Jocko's book, Extreme Ownership, which I think is somewhere in your library uh, on the desk, um, or maybe I'm just want, wanting it to be there. <laughs> but like, how, how do you as a team, you know, when something does go wrong, how do you work through addressing, all right, this is a wrong, here's why it happened, here's how we're going to solve it, but still maintaining the team morale? Right. Or is there just the team expectation now where the team truly, like, raise their hand, like, listen, this is my fault, I messed it up, here's how we're going to fix this. How have you all kind of, how have you kind of worked through that? Yeah. So that's one thing we preach is that, in our investment committee meetings, uh, we're all responsible for every deal we do. Even if I vote no on a deal that we close, and if the deal performs poorly, that just means I wasn't very good at influencing the team to talk them out of doing the deal. So regardless of how we vote on investment committee or regardless of who leads a deal, we all own it and we're all responsible for the outcome. And within each deal, there's always room for individual improvement. And we've always got to be open to receiving that feedback and giving that feedback. At the highest level, though, we all own every deal we do together. It is, we, we have preached that since day one. We don't ever want to be the kind of firm where attribution is to a single individual about deals. And if a deal goes bad, it's your fault. That is, that's just not how that would be great if you could actually, if it was that easy, but it's not, we make decisions as a team, which means we own all of our decisions as a team. So on, on the culture topic, uh, or maybe kind of, if we can get more into like the specifics of the Plexus capital culture, on you know your website throughout the office throughout the language of the team you know it's it's fascinating when we were there for two days to how palpable your culture is and it's an outlier in a positive way you know over the past three years we've been in probably 15 to 20 different office environments and you truly have a unique, positive culture that you feel. And it, it really forced us to start asking some tough questions about why we don't have that. And so I, I would love to learn how you define your culture and the things that we all can do to make sure that we build and maintain a quality culture. Right. Um, so, I mean, we're still, we're still, it's all always a work in progress and I can share our own experience with our culture. Uh, and, and I think every group has, what's been important for us is making it our own and our culture is very unique and probably isn't a fit for a lot of people. Um, but you know, at the core of our culture really is relationships. And that's our purpose statement is inspiring growth in all relationships. And that can sound in some ways like a kind of soft purpose statement, but it really hits on everything. So from an investor standpoint, 
how do I inspire growth in that relationship? The obvious thing is we have to deliver great returns, right? If we don't deliver great returns, we are not going to grow in our relationship with our investors. So that's a given. And then the, you know, other pieces of that are I've got to communicate when we do have challenges. We have to be clear and transparent about challenges that we've had um, and we've got to constantly improve. So, and then internally, that means to, for, for Mike Becker and I to work better and better together as partners, he's got to have the courage and I've got to have the courage to give him feedback, him to give me feedback, both the positive feedback that we all need as humans and the harder feedback. So that, that's really at the core of our culture. And I think if you talk, well, you've talked to just about everybody here at the firm, it is a real thing. It's not some academic exercise that we went through and just yeah. post on our walls around the office. It's a real palpable thing. Uh, two questions. One, how do you measure or how do you track if you have inspired growth in a particular relationship? That's the first one. And then going into feedback of, do you have regular scheduled feedback sessions to complement the ad hoc, hey, I just got off this call, we need to talk about something. Right. <laughs> but let's first talk about, you know, how do you measure inspiring growth in all relationships? Right. And the, the context that I'm asking this through is when we did our 360s in January, I realized I was only talking about our company vision and I didn't focus on the individual's vision for right. in, in their career. Right. You're right down, you know, hopefully we're the right company for the right stage of your career, but I don't actually know what your vision is. Right. Maybe they don't either. <laughs> we just right. need to do that. But that was like a tangible, you know, example that your, you know, inspiring growth and all relationships made me think about. So how, how have you thought about it? Yeah. So well, it's interesting that you bring that up. That's actually something that we, just rolled out this year in our kind of career conversations uh, effort. Uh, the first part of that was to have everybody write down what their personal and professional goals were. And then following up with conversations about how does that align with Plexus's overall goals and given kind of where you are in your career and where your current skill sets are, where are their gaps? Where do you line up well with what your goals are and, and what our needs are. And so that's, that's been a really healthy process for us. And, and all the partners did it too. It was, and we kind of shared our own kind of personal goals, which was actually a really powerful thing to do because it's not often that, you know, I step back and actually think about the bigger picture. It's, you know, a lot of times you just get so stuck in the grind of the day to day that you don't take time to kind of think about what are my bigger goals here. So did you um, feel that, were you reluctant to ask the team, like, hey, tell me about your personal and professional goals? <laughs> I'm like, I, I, I still hope it aligns with us. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, we've got, I do think we've, we've built, you know, really good trust with the team. So, um, and I think, you know, we would love it if everybody at Plexus could be with us, you know, for the long run. And that's not, going to be the reality, right? I mean, our needs aren't going to always line up with their needs and vice versa. And so we talk about it as 
we want to have this big coaching tree of plexus people that either are here with us for the long run or like Jenny Shirello, who was an absolute stud for us, got this incredible opportunity with Mass Mutual that she had to take. We were bummed and it's kind of cool that we've got Jenny Shirello out there who really believes in our culture that's now at Mass Mutual. And we're still doing business with her and we're still friends with her. We still stay in touch with her. Um, and so I think it's, it's, you know, like if, if I'm working with you and, you know, I'm reporting into you, if I know that you genuinely care about me personally, that means that you're going to care about me regardless of if I'm at 51 labs or if I'm at Plexus. And so I think that's the approach we've tried to take with, with each other. And as, as a firm, it's our job to create an environment where people want to be and to create opportunity for them to grow personally and professionally. So long so, answer to the question. But. No, that, that's, that's fabulous. And I think it's, it's interesting because it, it creates almost like a, uh, a sense of openness and transparency and trust on both sides. And we don't have to feel like we're hiding something from each side. And also I think it's coming through a realization of like, I'm really focused on you as an individual. And we hope that where you are at at this stage in your life, you know, is a really good fit with where we're at as a stage in our firm. And we want to be on this journey together. And if it's not a fit, then we love you. And we're going to help find some way for, you know, to this be a win-win for years because rec- and that actually makes me think my, my, uh, former MD and co-founder BDA partners. I was there for six years. And since I left five years ago, like I did, he was so focused on the long term and just the ripple effects of that positive relationship. Like I always speak positively about it. Right. So it's, yeah, sorry. No. It's making me think live here. <laughs> well, let's talk about the care values and kind of you know, that's around the office, on the website, and in all the messaging. Can you kind of break down what do the care values mean and, you know, kind of how do you live that? Yeah. So, uh, it's, so care stands for care about each other and our partners. Always do what's right. Respect each other and our business partners and expect excellence in everything we do. And so that's, that's our gold standard of you know, values. And I think the, 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 we're all human, right? We're, we're not always going to be above the line. So we're not always going to live up to the standard of our care values. And what we, you know, always talk about internally is that when we do fall below the line, that we're, people are giving us feedback, you know, have the courage to give us feedback and that we're listening to feedback, which is really hard. And that's a, constant uh evolution and uh you know we're, we're we it's something i'm working on this year is like i'm one of my big goals for the year is to i've got to do something to make myself more approachable to others because i haven't been getting as much real-time feedback and yet i know i need it like i can look back at many moments in the last year where i should have gotten some feedback and i didn't so what is it on my end of things that where i might be kind of unapproachable or people feel like they can't give me feedback. Why, so do you, I think, why do you say that? Or what have you maybe reflected upon about your 
you know, personality or whatever it is that might be producing that environment. Yeah. Um, I'm at the front end of trying to figure out what it is, but uh, one, I think just the position I'm in can be, can make it intimidating for, especially for non-partners. Um, and then I also think at the partner level, which is really where we're trying to get better about real-time feedback, both positive and the constructive is really the, like for me personally, what holds me back is fear, you know, fear of, I want to be liked. I want to uh, be viewed as doing a good job. And so how do I overcome that fear so that I can kind of stay true to the, really my integrity of doing what's right for Plexus? Because if I don't give feedback when I have feedback for somebody, really I'm defaulting to wanting to be liked and that's not good for Plexus. And the risk there is that people would feel manipulated versus like, you know, feeling like a partner. So that's the, that's what I've been focused on uh, in trying to improve on. That makes me think about the, one of the exercises we went through during our December offsite and then our 360s in January, where we use the people analyzer from the EOS framework. And as opposed to just the plus, plus minus or minus, uh, scores, you know, I asked the team, you know, start with me first, here are our values. And can you please write out like how I do or don't live up to these values, but like, give me specific examples because we all have emotions about the other person on the team, but emotions with substance allows action to happen. And through that, I learned so much about what I have to improve upon because they gave me specific examples, but then the other benefit is that hopefully is starting to create more of a environment where feedback is part of a growth mindset. Like I want feedback that's constructive because I want to make sure to hopefully signal to the team that my ego is not important. Like growth is important and we should all feel that the culture is, Hey, if something messed up, that's cool. Let's, let's figure it out. Let's have a growth mindset. And let's see where we can go from here. Right. Yeah. And I think the, I think the interesting thing is on the other side of that feedback spectrum is, is the positive feedback. And that's been really powerful for us with the team is to, to tell them like, I need positive feedback too. Right. Mm-hmm. Like in some ways it can be uh, easier to say, give me the hard feedback, you know, cause there's, there's like a, um, mental image of, of our, in our, in my head of like, yeah, I'm, I'm tough. I can take it. Like, give me, I want the hard feedback. It's much more vulnerable to say for me to say, I really do need the positive feedback. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where your point about specifics, we, you know, it's like you have to have affirmation, Jordan, great job on the interview. Affirmation is great, but it really doesn't do much without confirmation. If I don't say, God, Jordan, you've done such a good job in this interview because like your body language, I can tell that you're really engaged. You're leaned into the camera. You've got an energy to your voice where I can tell it's not scripted. That's meaningful feedback that tells you what, you know, you can keep doing to, you know, have a positive impact. So that's, we've got a shout out board that when you post a shout out for somebody, you, you, you tie it to a standard you 
state the specific observable behaviors, kind of like a movie. So there's, you're not assuming anything. You're saying what you saw and, and, and observed, and then you talk about the impact. Uh, so I think the, the positive feedback, at least for me, is more important than the constructive, right? Um, and that reminds me of that, uh, this book over my shoulder, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. And one of the pieces in there is, you know, to, to that exact point, you have to give substance to the specific feedback. Otherwise, it just seems, you know, insincere and right. also unthoughtful. And, right. and that, you know, the inner, other interesting part about this is I notice sometimes I, I take daily, almost daily notes on every person on the team. And what I noticed is a lot of my journal, some of the stuff was like things that were going wrong, whether little or big. I was like, why am I, why am I doing that? And then right. I recognized my own self-talk is so focused on, hey, that was wrong. That was wrong. Do this, do this. Okay, cool. But what I had to force myself to do was literally a template for every single day one thing positive and one opportunity for improvement because then it forces a template function, the brain, I have to put something positive there. Yeah. Well, that, so we had last year, I think we had a, over 850 shout outs logged into our shout out board. And the beauty of that for like our year in conversations was that we all, if you, if somebody reports into you before you have their performance uh, discussion, you get their full year of shout outs. And so, you know, so many of us are so type A driven and, and have a really strong self-critic that we focus on the negative. Mm. But when you're preparing for those performance reviews, you like I go through and you'll read 10 pages of all these shout outs and you're sitting there going, Oh my God. Yeah. Like if I had, if I didn't have this log of all these great things, you know, somebody did, I'd be so over-focused on the negative uh, and not all the positive stuff. So it's, it's been a powerful yeah. tool. I wonder what it is about our, is it type A personalities or is it, what is it? I'm, it's almost like I, I ask myself, like, am I just, am I becoming a negative person? I th well, uh, I think for me, it's been more about the kind of transition of, you know, the first part of my career was like, I thought I had it all figured out. I thought I knew what I needed to do. And it was all about basically, uh, the more successful I am, uh, and the, the, the more people are going to love me and I'm going to be accepted, uh, and kind of transition, trying to transition away from the ego a little bit and more to really, what is it that I really need? You know, and I think we all have a lot of the same, we all have the same basic human needs um, and just getting to a kind of a, a healthier place for me of kind of healthy shame of um, like just knowing and accepting like who I am, like the good stuff, the bad stuff and everything in between. And that's what makes me me. And I'm not Jordan. Uh, I'm Michael Painter and, you know, I'm unique and different and really owning kind of who I am. And that's a really hard thing to do. How, how have you thought about the team and how you define it in terms of like the analogies? And I, I was looking back at the, one of the other books on the shelf, with, which is No Rules, Rules by Reed Hastings and talking about the Netflix culture. And 
I really wrestle with these kind of competing ideas where on one side, you have Netflix saying we are not a family, we're a professional sports team. Now, right. to, you know, did Tom Brady and Gronk love each other? 100%. If one is not working for, you know, three, five, 10 games, guess what? <laughs> There's going to be a different relationship going on there. Right. But on the other side, you have kind of like the family language. And in our interview with Katie Walker and other people on the team, when we're asking, like, what is the Plexus? culture, you keep on hearing this language of family. At other clients that we've had, you also hear this language of family. And so I really wrestle with what is the right language that we should be using that is effective. But it's almost like I don't want to be delusional or like lie to the team. Like we are not a family, but you hear so many successful cultures like what you have. So how do you wrestle with this dynamic of family language versus professional sports team language and yeah. how you think about the plexus culture yeah so it's interesting when i read that whenever that came out seven or eight years ago that the the netflix culture document uh that struck me too and i i'm not sure there's much of a difference if you kind of frame the like the like we have very much a family environment and we are aspiring to be a functional family, which means that we more and more often communicate in productive, healthy ways, which means being able to talk about hard stuff and the good stuff and that things don't always go well and that there may not be an opportunity for you to do this or that. And there may be something that we can celebrate where you can do this. So I don't know, I might challenge that the, the pro sports team analogy is maybe not all that dissimilar to at least aspiring to be like a functional family. Um, I, you have given me the answer to a question I've been wrestling with for about six months. There we go. (laughs) It's not family versus pro sports team. It is uh, a functional family versus not. Yeah, and, and aspiring to be because we will never reach <laughs> fully functional. Well, let's um, let's let's talk about a, a book that is on my shelf, uh, the Little Book of Do by Kel Landis the Third. Yep. How does Kel's legacy af- affect you personally? How yep. does it affect the team? I mean, his you know picture is on the side of the lobby. The books are in every single office. It feels like it is part of the DNA and also everything that happens to you guys. So how does Cal's legacy affect you day to day and also the team? Yeah. Well, it's hard to believe that, uh, you know, January 2nd was a year since he died. Um, But he really was the impetus behind all of the work we've done around culture. He was the one that, brought the coach in when we had those initial struggles within the five partners. And it was hard. Like it's, this wasn't like a minor struggle in 2008. I mean, it was, there was some serious conflict and on top of that challenges, like meaningful challenges in the portfolio that we had to fight through. So he was the one that had the courage to say, we need to do this. And then he did the same thing about two or three years later, once we kind of got out of the great recession, at least a little bit, 
he had us as a team work on our collective ambition, which is, you know, about our purpose statement and our values and commitments to each other and the team. So he's, I mean, his legacy literally is you, you feel it when you walk around here, he was the best at giving feedback. So he would come in and give me really hard feedback that I may not listen to it until about 48 hours later. And I probably sometimes got a little defensive in the start. I may have left him a message one Christmas Eve Eve that I regretted. And my wife said, you need to go to his house and apologize. (laughs) (laughs) And I did. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he's at the core of, of our culture and his, the cool thing is, you know, we've got, we've got his book and for the last year since he's died, we take a chapter of his book. Um, we're now, uh, for last year we, we used, I can't remember which chapter, but, um, it was all about, uh, taking owner, letting your light shine, being who you are, letting the world see who you are. And so the weekly quote of the week had to kind of, you had to tie it back to that. And so we rotate our weekly, uh, the leadership of our weekly meeting to the whole firm. So every one of the 35 people, at least once a year, will lead our weekly meeting and they do a quote of the week and they've got to tie it back to a chapter in Kel's book. So that's been really cool. Um, what and are some chapters that really stick out for you and, 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 um, kind of going through some of them, like chapter one, do now, chapter yeah. two, what to do, uh, chapter three, do for yourself, which I thought was interesting in where he ordered do for yourself, as opposed to do for your community and, and the, just the or, or structuring. And it was interesting because when he's talking about do for yourself or do be healthy, chapter three and four, yeah. what he's really messaging is like, you can't do well for others unless you do well for yourself and you have that foundation. Right. Is what I yeah. got. From it. Yeah. So the, uh, the, the, I think the chapters that resonated most with me are um, kind of the, the uh, heeding the call to do like really owning who you are uh, and your unique gifts that you've got, which is a really hard thing to do. And then I loved the don't overdo it. Uh, chapter because um i one of that was just such a vulnerable thing for kel to talk about to just recognize that he has had a tendency sometimes to overdo do and that that's not healthy either so finding that balance uh those are probably two of my favorite but my probably my the favorite my uh, we actually redid his book for him when he was sick and we created the little book of being Kel Landis. And, uh, and so I like both of these together because I think that's what was, what made Kel really special really was not what he did. It was that he had the courage to really be himself. And Kel was a really unique, quirky, great, genuine, grounded human being. And he just was literally just uniquely himself. And he had the courage to do it. So that, that was his real gift to us. How, how, when did you reach the point in, in your journey of when you really felt that you could fully be yourself? Without, you, 
can you call me back in a decade or so? <laughs> and and I, I guess I'm asking that because when I think when I got to maybe the third or fourth year of our five-year entrepreneurial journey, I got, I just got really comfortable with, I'm just going to be who I am and we're going to work for some people and we're not going to work for other people and we don't need to work for everyone. And we just went back and we, we go through our client list and we're like, who do we really want to do more with from a culture perspective? Right. And who is like, know what they're fit for that time, but not a fit going forward. Right. And then, but that took that reflection of it's okay not to appeal to everyone. And that's one of my biggest weaknesses. I, as a, my personality is I want to be liked, but right. that reflection of, I don't need to be liked by everyone. Right. Yeah. It's a hard thing. I've, uh, Actually, for the first time, sorry, for the first time in my life uh, for the past year or so, I've been journaling. Uh, so that has been very helpful for me to start kind of peeling back the onions so that I can get closer to really um, getting more and more comfortable with kind of who am I really? What are my goals and what am I all about? And so it's evolved. How you, yeah. How have you thought about um, that makes me think about balance and how you how how do you integrate and balance the different parts of your life so and you know in 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 Cal's book in here he's talking about exercise and and health and that made me think that you know exercise is part of who we are every single day and the amount of hours that we put into our marathon training, our triathlon training, like we're never going to be this age again. Why not live the best life that we can at this age? And I was like, it made me wonder, you know, how much revenue are we losing by me, my wife and the team spending X amount of hours doing a different non-business activity. And then that in my journal made me think like, what am I actually trying to optimize for? It's right. not sales. It's not profit. I'm trying to offer eyes for an awesome life. But I was wondering kind of how you think about balancing your life. Yeah. Um, so I haven't been thinking about it as much in terms of balancing my life as um, cause, well, I guess what I've learned is like my, the things that I struggle with at work, at home with my friends, it really is all ties back to the same kind of, uh, insecurities, you know, that I've got. And so I, again, like journaling for me has been really about trying to understand myself better and my feelings and, uh, you know, why I'm experiencing certain, certain things, certain ways. Um, and so just trying to be more grounded more often in the fact that like I am, valid just because I woke up this morning. I don't have to, you know, go prove myself at work today to be valid. And the irony is when I do that, and I'm doing it more and more consistently, I don't journal every day, but it's getting better. When I do that and journal in the morning, I am actually better at what I do. I'm better at how I show up at work because I am less burdened by kind of, you know, wanting to be liked and so that's it, what it's fascinating that you're talking about that, that, uh, that exact point on being valid. Like 
I'm looking at my journal from January 29th, 2022 on a Saturday, you know, feeling anxious that I work hard and I'm not making enough money. I feel right. that I am undervalued. I feel that I spread thin, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, I work hard and we make 50, 100,000. Other people work hard, my peers, and they make 500,000. Right. <laughs> I'm like, what's, but then I started to work through that anxiety. And then I asked myself the key questions, which are, are you good at what you do? Do you right. love what you do? Do you right. love the people that you're doing this with? Are you living the life that you want? I was like, right. okay, check, 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 check. All right, chill yeah. out. Work. <laughs> that's, that's been the beauty of, of journaling for me is that when I just like the act of writing it down and then reading it, it takes the sting away from it. Like it sounds like that, like you, you recognize this anxiety that you were having some fear and then it led you to the wisdom of, okay, wait a minute, that's not actually something I need to be anxious about. And so like just processing that stuff has been super helpful for me. Otherwise it gets stuck in my brain and it feeds my self-critic. And that really takes up so much more energy for me than if I just journal about it. So it's fascinating. It's um, yeah, I, I've, my journal entries going back to 2009 and just kind of, you know, I have it like a daily reminder and sometimes I do it, sometimes I don't, but it's right. just that even if it's like one word, one sentence or one paragraph, but it, it, to the point that you're making, it allows you to, when you put it onto paper or in a Evernote journal, it, it also allows you to be objective to the emotion right? and separate. I'm like, is this actually rational? How, wait a second. Do I really think that? Come on. That doesn't make any right. sense. Um, what, when, when, when you look at your, your journal or the books you read, um, is there a particular quote or some guiding quotes that have really kind of stuck with you over time? I don't have, uh, I'm not a big quote guy, but, um, I mean, I'll say one of the most impactful books I've read is, uh, the ragamuffin gospel by Brennan Manning and, it's just so powerful because it's all about like we're awesome because of our humanness. Uh, it, it's and and so much of my life I've spent like trying to like hide my humanness and my flaws. And yet like you and when you were here, I felt like we connected so much because we actually talked about real stuff and that that's attractive. And as I get older, like I want more deep relationships like this, not the superficial stuff where we all act like we've got it together because we've all got challenges and great stuff and everything in between. And so, you know, that that's what I'm trying to get more of in my life is those kind of deeper relationships, you know, where I can, and, and that book, that book is really good at just bringing that to light. Well, and, and that, it's interesting that you're talking about just like the, the depth of relationships because I, I, I felt like it's only been in the past 12 months that Jing and I and the team have kind of come into that comfort zone of like, guys, listen, if, if we saw another project, fantastic. But what we really care about, like, do you, do you know the individuals that we are working with in the full sense, not just the know your client, check off the boxes know it inside and out, but do you know who they really are and what motivates them? Because it goes back to kind of what our mission is, and that's to, to form quality relationships 
in this specific M&A community. So we have a specific target, but it's focused on quality relationships. And that's intentionally broad. And because everything points back to does this video, does this post, does this interview, are we forming quality relationships? And just almost that comfort level of like, back to actually what we were talking about before we started recording and just realizing like we're literally living the best life that we could dream of right now. And yeah. it all comes back into forming quality, deep relationships. So maybe kind of, you know, wrap this up. What, what do you think you're, what are some of the things that you're most hopeful for with the firm when you look three to five years from now? Like, what are some of the elements of the non-financial elements, either for you individually, the team, or the LPs? What are the non-financial elements right. of success three to five years from now? Yeah. Uh, I think the most exciting part is, like, we've never had the quality and depth of team that we have right now. And we've got a lot of growth coming and some really cool opportunities for team members to step into, you know, bigger leadership roles. And so I think that's going to be the fun part is just watching how people continue to grow into their different roles and take on more responsibility and, and help us scale. And uh, so I think that's the thing that's most exciting. Is shifting over, like to the full coach mentality and seeing people grow into it. Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, all of us really, I mean, like as a partner group to accomplish the goals we want to accomplish, we have to build deeper levels of trust and collaboration, which is a big project that we're focused on this year with our outside coach that works with us. Um, I mean, so we're trying to develop, uh, you know, more capacity as leaders, as partners, and then the whole team has specific things that they're working on too. Yeah. So it's really all of us doing it together. Um, what type of coach, like what do they, what do they coach about? So we do work on a, at, a, at the partner level, we have a quarterly offsite and we do a lot of different stuff around building trust. And so at its core, like building trust is about, uh, you know, built first, you have to have empathy for somebody to trust and to build empathy. That means you've got to share more of your real self, right? So getting more comfortable talking about what are my fears in work and at, in, at, in my personal life, what do I really want to accomplish back to what we were talking about earlier? Like, what are those things for us as partners that are really important to us and foundational um, to us as individuals and getting to know each other's life stories better. And then you build empathy, which then builds trust. So those are the kinds of things that, that we're working on. So Julia Curtis is who we work with. And I mean, she, it's not always comfortable and most of the time it's not comfortable. And every time we leave one of those offsites, we all feel much more connected and ready to, you know, get a lot more done together. Yeah. Yeah. We have covered a fair amount of ground in this episode today. (laughs) We have. All right. Any, any parting thoughts for the audience here? I've got no parting thoughts, but uh, other than I really enjoyed the time and, and I love that we went totally off script and it just, turned into a great conversation.